I invite you to turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 4. Those of you who are just joining us, we have for uh, several weeks been in a series on uh, marriage, uh, sexuality. Uh, we, we had spent over a year uh, going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and um, we decided uh, after that series to, uh, to move to another book uh, that was authored by uh, King Solomon, and that is the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, as it's uh, usually referred to. And so we've been doing that for um, a number of weeks. This is actually our sixth uh, lesson of that, uh, that particular series. And uh, our, our goal is, Lord willing, we will wrap this up next Sunday. Uh, I, I, the struggle has been, there's, there's so many things we could talk about. And of course, we're not going into this book at quite the depth that we did, the Ecclesiastes and even other books that we've studied in the past, but just trying to do sort of a more of a high altitude uh, flyover of this book and pull out what I hope are some very practical principles for you. And based on the feedback I've gotten in, in previous weeks, it sounds like that's, that's what it's done. I think it struck a chord with, uh, with many of us, and uh, so that was really my intention from the beginning. And so we hope to complete this and then uh, come back at the first of the year uh, and start something uh, new. So we've made our way to the section of the book uh, this last time we were together describing the wedding procession, uh, the moment of the wedding and the consummation of the marriage between Solomon, uh, the groom in this case, and the Shulamite, we refer to her as the Shulamite, uh, the Shunamite, the, the maiden from, from Shunem. Uh, we really don't have her name, we just have a, a reference to most likely the town or the, 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 the village that she was from, Shunem. And so we might refer to her just as the Shulamite uh, maiden or perhaps even just the bride. So we've, we've come to that point in the book. It's really the center point of the book, talking about the actual day of the wedding and the consummation of the marriage between the groom and the bride. And I just want to read for us again in chapter 4, if you'll pick up uh, this last time we started in verse 8. And I just want to read through this make some comments, kind of pick up where we left off, and then spend a little bit more time today uh, making some application of the things that we looked at last Sunday. So uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 8, says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. And we kind of unpack that phrase a little bit. Basically says you've, you've taken away my heart or you've taken away my senses uh, in the sense that your, your beauty has deprived me of reason. So he just, Solomon is so overwhelmed with the beauty of his bride that he is, we might say, senseless. Okay, he's just, he's not even hardly thinking clearly. Uh, he's so overwhelmed by that. He says, you've made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up, which is, we said, is a reference to, to her sexuality and speaks of her purity, uh, speaks of her, her chastity and the fact that she had 
been closed off for, for, for so long and, and very careful to guard herself from sexual sin. Verse 13, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna with nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all the finest spices. So he refers to her as an orchard, or as we said, as a, it really it's a term used of an enclosed park. Uh, this would have been something in Solomon's day that would have been a a sort of a place to go that was reserved for, for, for royalty, for the, for the kings of that day. So he refers to her as an orchard or this enclosed uh, park uh, and a park or garden full of beautiful and pleasing plants with spices and fruits and flowers. So to Solomon, he just says she's beautiful, right? She's beautiful, she's pure uh, and attractive to him in every way. And she isn't just a beautiful garden, she is also the source of the water. We said for the garden, a a well of underground water, verse 15. He comments, he says, you are a garden spring, a well of fresh water and streams flowing from Lebanon. So then we said there's this shift. So he's he's basically um, praising her, and again, this is in that, you know, we don't know the exact hour, but I'm saying this is clearly the day of the wedding. He's, he's, he's acknowledging uh, her beauty. And then we said there's this shift that takes place in verse 16 as this, this young woman goes from being closed to Solomon's physical love to being open to it on their wedding night. And again, this is just sort of the, the center point of the, of the entire book. The bride says in verse 16... Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south, make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. Literally, may, may those fragrances that were trapped and closed, may those things flow. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. So she describes herself not simply as an open garden, as a, in contrast to that closed spring, closed garden. So she, she's saying, she's describing herself not simply as an, an open garden, but we pointed out that she now refers to herself as his garden. So before she was a closed garden and just a garden. Now she is an open garden, open spring, flowing, and she uses this possessive form and says that she is his garden, signifying that sort of voluntary... Uh, uh, surrender as would be appropriate for a wife to to her husband. Uh, They consummate their marriage, and then Solomon declares in chapter 5, verse 1, I have come into my garden. So he recognizes this, right? So he himself referred to her as closed and not his prior to this moment, but now he refers to her as his own. So he says, I I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Okay, so this is just a hard shift at this point in the book. And it's my garden, my sister, my bride, my myrrh, my balsam, my honeycomb, my honey, my wine, and my milk. (laughs) Okay, we hadn't seen any of that language up to this point. Okay, And, and the point is this is pure joy. Okay, I mean that's 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 why he's he's kind of if you if you think about it he's he's not content to just say one of those. 
Okay, it's, it's as if he's piling up these descriptions in, in order to just say this is pure joy and to say that the Lord smiles on what's going on. Okay, to think that had sexual intimacy taken place prior to exchanging of vows and the commitment of marriage, it would have been sinful, wrong, right? It would have been a distortion of what God has designed. And yet in this moment, it's actually something that God is smiling on because it's within the, the principles that he's given to us and it's within his, his design. And then we find this very interesting statement in the second half of verse 1. Uh, Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, the New American Standard says, O lovers. And we considered who might be saying these words. Uh, it's not the bride, it's not the bride speaking to her husband, and it's not the, the, the groom saying this to his wife. We've said there's probably a couple of other possibilities. It could be the wedding guest, in a sense, wishing them all the joys and marital bliss of the honeymoon. So sort of they're, 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 they're recognizing this God-given gift and design, and they are sort of saying, you know, in, enjoy that, that God has given. That's a possibility, although some struggle with that just because of the intimate nature of what's being said, you know, and just the, would it be that appropriate for a group of people, <laughs> guests at a wedding, to, to, to be saying that kind of thing? Um, or we said it might be the Lord himself affirming the sexual love between this couple as something that is holy and beautiful and a part of his design. And there are some people that take that view, that this is actually, even though the Lord is not mentioned by name, that this is sort of heaven's viewpoint of what's going on. And so certainly there are witnesses, there are people involved in, in, the, in the commitments and and what's going on on the wedding day, but then there's this very private moment, and really the only one witnessing this moment, apart from the bride and the groom themselves, is the Lord. And we know the Lord does that, right? I mean, the Lord sees and knows all things, and He would certainly approve if He's the one that created it, right? He would certainly approve of it, and this may be His words to this couple, that what they're doing and in, in, in how this is being done and, and the very idea itself is, is uh, blessed by him. So chapter 4, 16, and five, chapter 5, verse 1, again, this is the climax of the book. This is the center point. Everything from the beginning of chapter 1 has been leading up to this moment, and everything beyond these verses will flow out of this God-blessed union. And from all of this, we noted six principles last Sunday, and I just run through these kind of rapid-fire and then, and then again, move to some apl- specific application. Principle one, we said, is so- sex and marriage is very good. Sex and marriage is very good. Genesis 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So that is to say there is something fundamentally good about human sexuality, Right? It is, and I sometimes describe it for people this way just to kind of boil it down, it is, it is sex with the wrong person at the wrong time for the wrong purpose and or with wrong thinking that makes it sinful and unholy. Okay? So any of those. <laughs> sex with the wrong person at the wrong time for the wrong purpose or with wrong thinking. That's what makes it sinful and unholy. But sex and sexual desire are not inherently sinful. Right? And sex within marriage is not unspiritual. It's not, it's not something that is, that, is, 
that is dirty. In fact, the Bible is warmly in favor of sex with the right person, your spouse, at the right time after marriage, for the right purpose, God's glory, and with pure thinking and unselfish motives. Right? So, if within those parameters, this is good. Right? This is, this is good. So we need to know that. We need to know that sex and marriage is very good. Principle number two, sex and marriage is a gift. Sort of goes along with that. Uh, even though it is like many of God's gifts that have been twisted and distorted, nevertheless, it is a gift from the Lord, and it ought to be received with gratitude and enjoyed by those who are married rather than neglected, which in some cases it is, or even worshipped. Right? So we have these extremes that are going on, and I see this in a, in a lot of the, the, the marriage counseling uh, that I do, that this area tends to be something that is, it's overemphasized. You know, they're making too much of this particular thing as if, if this area of their life is not fantastic, then everything else must be terrible, right? So they just got too much emphasis on it. But then in other cases, certainly there's this just outright sort of neglect as if, as if, we don't need to talk about it. We don't need to make it better. We don't need to work on it. And they've just kind of set it aside and treated it as if it's just it's not something that God is concerned about and it has nothing to do with their sanctification, right? It's just a, you can kind of take it or leave it. So both of those things are, would, be, would be wrong. So sex and marriage is a very good. Sex and marriage is a gift. Principle number three, sex is more than physical activity. It is more than physical activity. In other words, it has everything to do with your relationship to Christ, right? And it has everything to do with what is going on in your heart, right? I mean, we cannot, we cannot see not just sex, but anything that we do as Christians with our physical bodies, we cannot see that as something that is separate from what's going on in, in our hearts, right? So, so what we do with our bodies at any time in our lives as Christians is never just some physical act, right? So it, that doesn't matter. It, it could be self-harm. It can be drugs. It can be, it, it, it has to do with our eating. I mean, did Paul say anything about the way we should eat and drink, right? Right? That's, that's a, we could, we could, if we're not careful, we could look at that as just a physical activity, Right? You all right, Jeff? Okay. Whew. Did the dog get you? <laughs> he jumped at you. Yeah, you snapped at you. If we're not careful, we can, we can think things like eating and drinking are not spiritual activities, right? But this was, this was the error of the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church had bought into this idea that spirituality was some sort of a Gnostic thing, some sort of just something that was going on in a spiritual kind of a a mystical plane and that it had nothing to do with what you do with your body, which is why they were practicing immorality and they were doing all these things with their physical bodies, but not seeing the impact and the relationship that has on their inner man, right? So like inner man, outer man, those things go together, right? And they in- impact one another. And so that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians makes the statement that whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, you do all for the glory of God, right? Because he's just saying, even, the, even those mundane daily things you do and things you do with your physical body are important to the Lord. 
and you need to be thinking about the glory of God and the glory of Christ, right? So what we do with our bodies is never just some physical act. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in what? Your body, right? You've been bought, so not just your inner man, right? Not just your soul, but you have been bought in every way, right? God, if you're a believer, God owns you. He's purchased you. He's bought you with the blood of Christ. Therefore, in light of the fact that he owns you, everything about you, then you're to glorify God, right? That's, that's your purpose. Which also means that we must never think of marriage or even our sexual intimacy in marriage as a discipleship-free zone, right? So we go out, we, we, we go on a mission trip or we go and share our faith or we go serve at the soup kitchen or whatever. Sometimes we're out there and we're doing things in the world and we're thinking about counting the cost, right? We're thinking about uh, sacrificing for the Lord and serving Christ, but then sometimes we come into the house <laughs> and we th- oh, this is a discipleship-free zone, right? So it's all about taking up your cross and following Jesus when we're out there, but then sometimes when we come in the door of the house, we're not thinking about taking up our cross and following Jesus. And I would say you go even deeper into the recesses of the house, perhaps even into the master bedroom, and I'm saying that is not a discipleship-free zone, right? The attitude and the determination and purpose of sacrificing and laying your life down and following Christ, follows that, that ought to be with you everywhere you go, okay? Now, some people obviously have... the. the they have sometimes the opposite problem. Right? They think about following Christ in the home and, and doing all that serving and sacrificing there, but then sometimes they leave the home and they go to work or they, they get out on, in, in some sort of sports activity and you know, it's like discipleship-free zone out there, right? But we don't make that distinction. We don't make this sacred, secular distinction, right? We are to be glorifying Jesus in public and glorifying Jesus in private. Principle number four, marital sex is the good and helpful expression of good desires. Marital sex is the good and helpful expression of good desires. That is to say, sexual attractiveness, beauty, desire, and delight are affirmed and accepted as a right and natural part of this world and this life. But the only legitimate expression of our sexuality is within the bonds of marriage. That is why Paul says two verses later uh, in 1 Corinthians 7-2, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. That is why the writer of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 13-4, marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So he, he uses these categories, and again, these, are, these terms in the, in, in the Greek are, can be big umbrellas. I mean, large, large terms with a lot of different usages. But essentially, I think what he's saying is that premarital sex, which is sex without intimacy and commitment, is wrong. And adultery, which is sex that is not exclusive, we talked about the importance of exclusivity a few weeks ago, that is wrong. And homosexuality, which is sex that violates God's original design, is wrong, right? Male and female, he created them. 
but sex within the context of marriage is good and honorable. So you see the contrast he's making there? Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. So it's this is honorable and good, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Right? So again, right time, right person, right attitudes, right thinking, right, right goals. Those are very, very important. Principle number five, marital sex is to be a regular activity. Marital sex is to be a regular activity. By the way, if you want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 7, um, I'm pulling from this uh, particular passage here, uh, picked up with the end of chapter 6, and we looked at this as well last week. But 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3, Paul writes, "...the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body." But the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In other words, we are commanded to work at satisfying our spouse's desires. Okay. Now, I read several comments last week from a book. John Piper wrote a book on uh, called This Momentary Marriage. I quoted some things out of that. This actually comes from a sermon that he preached uh, years ago on this particular text in 1 Corinthians 7, and this is what he says. Again, I think this is very helpful. He says, This is paradoxical counsel to married couples, and I think Paul knows it. It does not give either spouse the right to demand certain sexual acts from the other that he or she does not want to give. It is more complex than that. What is paradoxical and delicate about this text is that logically it doesn't work. What it does is call the couple to a profound effort to please the other without settling who will wind up getting the most pleasure, especially because each person will get pleasure in not asking the other to do what the other finds unpleasurable. Okay? Stay with me. Okay? If her body is his, and his body is hers, and each has authority over the other's body, then he has the authority to ask her to do something that he would find pleasurable, and she has the authority over his body to ask that he increase her pleasure by not asking that she do that. (laughs) You tracking with me here? That's what he's talking about, but it's paradoxical. It's like, well, if you're supposed to be pleasing one another, but you have rights over their body and they have rights over your body. Well, couldn't they just turn the lot? When you go to request or ask, couldn't they just flip it on you and say, you can't do that because I have rights over your body, okay? So he's just trying to say what, he says, logically, the text leads to stalemate. And I think Paul knew that. He was leading them beyond logic in this matter. This is analogous to Romans 12.10 where Paul tells us, outdo one another in showing honor. I will try to honor you and you will try to honor me and who will have the greater joy of honoring the other more? It is a mysterious dance of love in the Christian community as we lay down our rights and our demands and seek to outdo one another, not in what we can get, but in what we can give. Similarly, in marriage, we are seeking mainly to please the other. She wants to please him and so is prone to give what he desires. He wants to please her and is so prone not to demand what she finds unpleasant to give and vice versa. 
Here's one way that the paradox is broken, he writes. The leadership of the husband is defined by Paul not mainly as demanding his rights, but as laying down his life for the good of his wife, Ephesians 5.25. Therefore, the predominant resolution of the sexual paradox is that the husband gently and tenderly takes the lead in seeking to maximize his wife's pleasure, taking her longings deeply into account rather than pressuring her to adapt to his. The practical application of 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5 is not resolved by logic or taking turns or male dominance or female submission. It is resolved in the mystery of love that discovers even here when our physical pleasure is more prominent than anywhere else, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There is a holy and humble and self-sacrificing competition. Okay, grasp what he's saying here. This is sort of his, his last, state, last statement or two. There is a holy and humble and self-sacrificing competition to make the other maximally glad. The logic, logical stalemate is broken by the miracle of grace. With God, all things are possible. So he's just saying basically the, the, what, what the Romans 12.10 passage tells us when, it, when Paul says outdo one another in showing honor is just saying fight for the bottom. All right? We don't want to fight for the bottom. We want to fight for the top. Right? We want to climb the ladder. We want to step on people right, to get above them. And what Paul's saying is no, that's not a Christian virtue. Christian virtue is fight for the bottom. Right? Fight to lower yourself right? And to esteem and honor others. And he's just saying, take that general principle out of Romans 12 and bring it to the marriage relationship where these things are played out in even, even a more intimate way. And he's just saying, husbands and wives should strive to fight for the bottom. That's it. So they're just basically saying they're laying down their rights. They're laying down their their, their desires. They're trying to seek the other. And guess what, folks? If you have two people in a marriage that are competing to be sacrificial and loving and humble, you'll figure it out. You know what I'm saying? It's like, those are not the couples I'm counseling, okay? The couples that I'm counseling are not saying, we got into this big argument because I was trying to please him, and he's like, well, I was trying to please her, and and I was trying to fight for the... You guys, see you later. All right, I got, I got other things. I got, I got other things to do. Right? Those aren't the people. The people that I'm meeting with are people that are not even thinking about their spouse in that way. It's all about personal rights. It's all about, you know, desires that they have that, and 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 that they've put their desires and their expectations over into the needs bucket. Right? I can't be happy in my marriage unless I have such and such. And they've taken their desires and they've put the label needs on their desires. And at that point, you're setting yourself up for, for, for shattered expectations. I mean, once you do that. So fight for the bottom, right? Holy, humble, self-sacrificing competition to make the other maximally glad, right? Only Piper could, could write such a <laughs> Like I could write such a sentence. So marital sex is to be a regular activity. That is clear in verse 5, right? Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That is to say, there are reasons for a married couple to abstain from sexual relations for a period of time 
But notice the specific reason Paul mentions in this verse, and that is for prayer, right? So that they can devote themselves to prayer, which I assume means that before this time of temporary cessation, the couple would be devoted to building their sexual intimacy. Because it's almost as if Paul's saying, I expect you to be devoted to marital intimacy, but there are times when you will not devote to that so that you can devote to this, right? That's the way I take this. Is he saying, I would, this would be the normal thing. The normal thing would be for you to be devoted to this aspect of your marriage, but there'll be times and in, in seasons in life for different reasons. It's not just prayer. I mean, certainly there are providential reasons for that, right? I mean, guys in the military, gone six months, a year, whatever, surgeries. There's, there's reasons why we have periods of cessation in this area. But I think what Paul says, nor, the normal thing would be for, be for you to show devotion to this aspect of your marriage. But, but yes, there will be times where you'll take that sense of devotion and you'll target it over here in this way, but not permanently, right? So that that, that time will come to an end, whatever that season is, it'll come to an end. And at that point, what's going to happen? The devotedness that you put into that thing goes back, right? It transfers back to this issue of sexual intimacy in relations. Engaging in sexual relations, often enough to keep each other satisfied and engaging in sexual relations in marriage, often enough to avoid temptation, which brings us to the sixth principle. Marital sex is a part of God's design to also fight off sexual temptation. This is what a healthy sexual relationship between a husband and wife does. It serves to provide a level of protection around your spouse because of a satisfied marital sexuality. Okay, the, the, the proper channeling of one's, one another's sexual energies serves as a tremendous deterrent from immorality. That's basically what Paul's saying here. Remember our uh, 19th century English theologian, Charles Bridges. Uh, we've quoted him off and on through this series as well as back into um, our series on uh, Ecclesiastes. He says this, again, this is, uh, you got to kind of put yourself back in, you know, the uh, early 1800s and hear it through that, that sort of that, that perspective. He says, quote, Tender, well-regulated, domestic affection, right? It sounds like, what's, the, what's the, that series of movies? Little, uh, not Little Women. What's the other one? Pride and Prejudice, yes. yeah. Sense and Sensibility or whatever it is. Tender, well-regulated, domestic affection is the best defense against the vagrant desires of unlawful passions, right? That's his way, basically saying what Paul's saying, which is, that when you tend to this and it's consistent and it's and it's it's what it needs to be and you're working at it, it does serve as a deterrent against unlawful passions. Again, it doesn't. It, it saying that. Listen, folks, you don't take the punch out of that. Okay. When I when I quote that verse or I'm teaching someone that verse, their immediate thing is, oh, so you're saying that if someone steps outside the marriage covenant and commits adultery, that it's the fault of the other spouse because they didn't satisfy the desire. You know, it's it don't go there. That's not what Paul's saying. Don't take the thunder out of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying this is a legitimate deterrent against immorality. See it for what it is, and yes, along with that, certainly nobody has an excuse to be unfaithful in marriage. You know, it, 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 you have all the desires in the world and your spouse can be not 
care one bit about your desires, but that does not ever give you the right to say, okay, I can, I can, I can step outside of God's truth and his principles here, okay? But still, see that for, for what it is, okay? Marital sex is a part of God's design to also fight off sexual temptation. Now, for those of you who are married, let me give you what I hope are some helpful and practical truths, uh, particularly the husbands, uh, related to these, these principles that we've just talked about. Number one, wives normally have a lower sex drive than their husbands, and most wives would change that fact if they could. Okay? Wives normally have a lower sex drive than their husbands, and most wives would change that fact if they could. Which means that her lower desire for sex does not necessarily mean that she sees her husband as undesirable. We talked about this. Wives want to be affirmed, you know, in their attractiveness. Husbands want to be affirmed in their desirability. And I'm just saying you, you have to, to, to understand this. This is something helpful for, for husbands. Uh, so it, it means that her lower desire for sex doesn't necessarily mean that she sees her husband as undesirable, which doesn't mean that she doesn't want sexual activity or doesn't enjoy it once it is happening, but seeking it out is not usually on her mind. Okay, someone said this for husbands, sexual activity usually provides an escape from exhaustion. But for wives, they usually have to pull themselves out of exhaustion in order to want to have sex. Okay, it's just we're just different. Okay, we're just different in in that way. And and we need to understand these differences. If we're going to please the Lord, I think, um, in, in this area. Number two, another application. Wives normally need more warm-up than their husbands. Wives normally need more warm-up than their husbands. One wife testifies. She says, It's not that I don't want to make love to my husband, but at the end of a long day with four kids, my mind is set on a course like a cruise ship heading for port. Port being that quiet bit of space that mom anticipates when the kids are asleep. The chores are done, the house is quiet, and just as I am in sight of that port, my hubby rolls over and says, what you doing over there? (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) What you doing? Amen, right? Okay. So I'm saying, it's, again, okay, exhaustion, okay, all this is, is plays, plays in here, okay? So sometimes it's not that, that a wife doesn't want to be intimate with her husband, it's just difficult for her to turn on a dime, right? It's difficult for her to just do an about face in, in the blink of an eye, and as men it is hard for us to understand that. Number three. A husband's body, no matter how much of a stud he is, (laughs) by itself is not usually enough to turn turn on her body. It's usually not enough, okay? She is not like him, which is actually good news for those of us, maybe sort of average Joes or those of us with, we call it the dad bod, right? We mentioned that from the the show Fixer Upper, right? 
That's encouraging for us that may have a dad bod. A wife can find her husband desirable and outwardly attractive, but she is normally not turned on by that alone. She is usually turned on in more out of sight and powerful ways, which leads to this fact that this other fact I think that that um, um, that most guys have heard many times but have never quite come to terms with, and that is sex for a wife begins in her heart. Sex for a wife begins in her heart. Which, by the way, just a question. What are some of the things that can hinder the pleasure and enjoyment of the sexual relationship in marriage? And I'll just give you kind of where I'm going. It's just an example of this. Uh, lack of privacy, right? I'm just talking about just, just basic stuff here, okay? Just what, what can be some things that hinder intima, enjoyment of intimacy in marriage? Sometimes it's just, it's, it's simple things. It's just, there's a lot of activity and kids are around and doors are open. And so I'm just saying sometimes we have to think about those very practical things. What are, but what are some other, in that sort of category of just common sense sort of things, practical things, what are some other things that may hinder the enjoyment of, of that relationship in marriage? For those of you who are married, any, any comments on that? Any things that TV, right? I mean, TV's going, TV in the bedroom. I mean, a lot of people have a television in their, uh, in their bedroom. We don't, we don't, I'm not saying do or don't. I'm just saying we don't have that. But there's certainly, I mean, things like that that can be distracting, right? What else? Schedule. Ske- schedules, right? Just, just, I mean, we're, folks, our schedules, are, we're packed. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, we're squeezing a lot of things, right, into our day. Sometimes it's just schedule and not just the busyness of it, but sometimes it's the differences of that schedule. So a husband and a wife are just kind of, their schedules are opposite. You know, you've got, the, the, uh, typically you have spouses, one or the other, that they, they, they would probably choose to go to bed earlier and then get up earlier, and then you have the night owls, right, that want to stay up all night and then, you know, crash and then wake up a little bit later. And I'm saying those are just practical things you have to work on. You have to talk about those things. And, again, you've got to prefer and you have to serve and you have to make those accommodations. What, what else? Any, any other thoughts on that? What's that? Health and fatigue. Health and fatigue. Okay. Uh, some of those are um, you can do something about, you know, some of those you can't. Right there are, are are there physical, physiological things going on here at times, um, and uh, and those things can change through the years, and so you have to think about that. You have to get counsel on those things. You have to talk about those issues. Again, sometimes you, there's adjustments that can be made. Um, what else? Any, anything else? Nobody said body odor, bad breath. You know, just just stuff like that. Right? Guy goes you know goes out. And he's got gas. He's been cutting the grass. He's got sweat and gasoline all over him. You know, although there is a cologne I think I've seen at the store called Diesel, but I don't think that's certainly that's not what it smells like. But anyway, um, and and hey, and if you and if your wife, but if your wife is saying I love that, when he's, then don't change. Don't, don't take a shower. Okay, I'm just saying. It's 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 a personal thing, right? But I mean, some people literally are going, "I don't get it." I mean, this and it's something's as simple as, you know, lack of preparation or schedules or health or sometimes just those simple things, right? One of the ones I put down: impatience. Sometimes just flat out impatience, you know, for people. Sometimes it's a what I call a lack of relational intimacy, not sexual intimacy, but relational intimacy, which can be the result of couples 
not quickly resolving conflicts, right? So they're fighting all the time. Well, if they're fighting all the time, I can just tell you, okay, this area is not going to be where it needs to be. Um, Not speaking words of affirmation. So just a lack of not doing the things we've talked about in weeks past, you know, just emphasizing those things, affirming one another, both going both directions, not spending enough time and energy to romance their spouse, right? So it's just, again, they've kind of relegated the sexual intimacy as a sole compartment in their marriage, but they're not, they're not, they're not doing anything else. You know, they're, 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 for, they're forgetting their anniversary, right? They're not bringing flowers home every once in a while. They're, they're not planning times to get out and get away. And they're just, so they're just not, they're not, the romance factor is not there and, and that's going to impact the uh, sexual relationship. Okay, number four, let's get back to this. Sex for a wife begins in her heart. In other words, her body's ability to respond sexually is usually tied to how she feels emotionally about her husband in the moment. Okay? Agree? Those of you wives in here, you agree with that? Her body's ability to respond sexually is usually tied to how she feels emotionally about her husband in the moment. What is in her heart about her husband and how she responds sexually are melded into one. C.J. Mahaney, uh, Sex, I think, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God, I think is the name of the book, has this advice for husbands. Ladies will appreciate this. He says, quote, In order for romance to deepen, you must touch the heart and mind of your wife before you touch her body. All right, so he's just saying, you better be targeting... The affections, the heart, uh, the inner man, the the struggles, um, you know, the things that are r- racing through your wife's mind. You've got to you've got to tap into those things if before you start addressing this area of physical intimacy. If you don't ever do that, okay, and no guy, no man does this perfect. If your if your goal is not to do that, if you're not trying to touch the heart and mind of your wife in any way. Uh, again, it's going to have a huge and, and, and detrimental impact on the physical intimacy. And because of all of these realities, you can see how the insecurity of a wife and the desirability of a husband could be, on one hand, beautiful, but it could also be war, right? It could be World War III. I mean, again, if these things are not, are not happening and, and that affirmation is not being expressed and experienced, then uh, this... this can be some bad stuff, right? I mean, I had a couple that I was that were coming in for counseling a couple of weeks ago, and Shane was in his office, and we were coming down the hallway, and they were turning into my office, and and she said something about a box cutter. I commented, and then she was talking about the first week that they came. I've been meeting with them for you know a couple months, few months, but she was just commenting about the first night they came in for counseling. And she's going into my office, and Shane's door's open, and she's like, yeah. She said, well, if I'd have had a box cutter that night, she said, there would have been blood all over this office. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, what is Shane thinking? I mean, he's, he's here. All he's hearing is box cutter, blood on the wall. But she was really describing. I'm telling you, that night was a rough night. I mean, and she, she was turning to him, looking at him in the eye and saying, I hate you. I hate you. Thankfully, they're not, they're not there uh, in that place anymore. Um, they have grown tremendously, and things are much, much better. But uh, it, it can be like that. 
Number five, this is the last one I'll give to you. A wife may want physical pleasure as much as her husband, but if it's not happening, she may be reluctant. That is to say, a husband or a wife can put all kinds of pressure on one another in the context of marriage, both relationally and sexually, but all that pressure will normally steal and rob the marriage of the beautiful intimacy God intends that is sexual but is so much more. Okay? So again, your goal has to be the satisfaction of your, your mate, your spouse. And what you need to do and keep doing is to have a conversation about these things. Okay? Just like you should have a conversation about other areas of your marriage, like parenting or finances or ministry, as I said last week, this is an area of stewardship, right? Your body belongs to Jesus. And then according to Paul, then after that, so you think they're first, because Paul says basically, think about it, if you put the end of chapter 6 in 1 Corinthians together with the beginning of chapter 7, he says, your body belongs to Jesus, and then your body belongs to your husband or wife. Right? That's basically what he's saying. Those two truths go together. First, God owns you. Glorify God in your body. And then he turns right around and says, oh, and by the way, your spouse has rights over your body. So it's both of those things going together. Jesus own, You belong to Jesus, and your body belongs to your husband or wife, and your body provides the opportunity for you to be able to serve the Lord and your spouse. So this ha- has the potential to be something wonderful and glorious, but it also has the potential to bring so much pain, so much hurt, uh, deep hurt into a relationships and uh, into your relationship. And I don't, again, I said last time, I don't know where you, the Lord finds you on that spectrum in marriage, but I'll say it again, based on what the Bible teaches, the issue of sexuality in the confines of your marriage is worth working on. It's worth working on. Sometimes there's pain, sometimes there's challenge and misunderstanding, but you cannot afford to give up on this. You cannot um, just set this to the side and, and not work on it. You need to think of sexual intimacy in marriage as another area of sanctification, right? An area that you ought to be growing in. Complacency is not acceptable to the Lord, okay? Complacency is not acceptable. We ought to want what God wants in marriage. We need to find out what He wants and then line up our goals behind His. And we need to know that when we ask what God wants, we are also asking what is best for us. Right? Because what God wants for us is best for us. So when we ask that question, and even in this area of sexuality within the marriage context, or for that matter, sexuality outside of that. If, if those of you who, who are in the class and you're, and you're single, I'm just saying, you, when you ask the question, what does God want me to do, you're also asking the question, what is best for me? Because <laughs> those two things are, are one in the same. So we need to guard against selfishness, against viewing sex and marriage selfishly or as a way to meet my needs. Uh, someone said this, it is a short step from loving you to loving me and wanting you. Think about, think about that. It is a short step from loving you to loving me and wanting you, right? It's very, very easy in marriage to drift into selfishness, right? We need to guard against a self-centered view of sex and marriage, We were not made to gaze forever into the eyes of another human being and find in him or her all that we need. 
And if we think that we were, then we are bound to be disappointed. Uh, This irony that we expect so much of marriage and sex but find it disappointing is an irony that the Bible understands perfectly, and it's called idolatry, right? We've talked about that. And, And idols are empty, they are vacuous, they are disappointing things that have no power to help us. So that is why it is so important to focus on Christ and focus on pursuing the honor of God more than pursuing a good marriage. Okay? The moment that I make my relationship the goal of my life, I doom myself to disappointment. Okay? So in order to build a good marriage, it's important to get sex in its proper place. I'm hoping this this study over the weeks has helped us to do that. Not to have too high a view of this, too high a view of sex. Sex is not a savior, right? Sex is not something through which we discover ourselves, who we really are. Sex is not something to be worshipped. But it is a gift from God and something to be brought under the Lordship of Christ. So we want to guard against having too high a view of it. But on the other hand, we also need to guard against having too low a view of sex. As we've seen, Paul was very concerned to prevent sexual intimacy from dying within marriages. So he tells husbands and wives not to deprive one another, rather to devote time, energy, and attention to this aspect of married life. Christopher Ash said this, quote, Christians tend to focus on the epidemic of sexual activity outside marriage. But we should probably focus as much on the epidemic of sexual inactivity within marriages. Right? And I'm saying, folks, I see it all the time. I see couples coming in that if you ask them about this, about just sexual immorality and the culture and all that, they would, man, they would jump on that. They would start harping about media and, and, and the challenges of raising their kids in this immoral culture and world and all of that, want to fight that battle. And yet some of those very same couples completely ignore this part of their marriage. And I'm saying it is both no and yes, right? There is the no side of the, the, the prohibition side of we need to be careful about these things, but there's also the big yes that says this is something that God created. It's something we ought to be using for His glory and, and ought to please God in this area of our lives in every way. So if we just focus on the no and we don't see the big yes over this, then we're, we're, we're not, that's not a full picture. Of course, we know that a happy sexual relationship in marriage will change its dynamics over time, but intimacy and delight in each other can happily and contentedly survive the decline of physical desire. And at every age, the principle remains that in marriage, each owes his or her body to the other to give the other all the love and intimacy of which they are capable. So we need to put sex in its proper place. On the one hand, it's not the be-all, the end-all of marriage. It cannot save us or give us our identity or ultimate fulfillment. On the other hand, sex is very important, and the sexual relationship needs to be nurtured as the heart of a relationship of faithful love. That is to say, around sex there is friendship and companionship, and it's important for us to nurture the private intimacy of marriage in order to keep the, the, keep the fires burning that will warm others inside and outside our home as family life and hospitality thrive. 
So I want to invite you back into that conversation. Okay, I want to encourage you to evaluate this area, to talk with your spouse about these things. Maybe somebody else needs to help you. It's, in fact, folks, this is one of the reasons why I had Dave Hill come in a few weeks ago, share his testimony. It's why I had Mark share his testimony, because my concern is not that you're going to come knocking on my door. Okay, my concern is that the Lord is stirring in your heart, you know, bringing conviction about these areas, and you you know you need to give attention to this, and you need to talk to somebody. My concern is that you won't knock on my door, right? And what I'm trying to say is we got Mark, we got, we got Dave, we got lots of people in this church, faithful believers that can come alongside of you and encourage you and help you, okay? So take a look at this aspect of your marriage relationship and, and begin to move in the right direction. Additionally, you may have a sexual past, maybe far-reaching, maybe more recent, it could have been your foolish and sinful choices. It may have been, you may have been on the receiving end of someone else's selfish or sinful choices. But all of that can be eclipsed with the beauty of what God's grace can be in this particular area, right? God can forgive you. He can cleanse you. He can give you a, he, he can make a new, clean sexual life possible in marriage, okay? Regardless of what has happened to you, regardless of the decisions you've made in the past, and even the scars that remain. Christ is not powerless against those scars. Okay, He may not remove all the problems that these scars cause uh, us in our lives, but He has promised to work even in all these problems for our good if we love Him and are called according to His purpose. We, we can trust Him. We can learn to help one another in, in marriage. So, how well are you doing in serving your spouse when it comes to his or her sexual desires? Is sexual intimacy something that you can talk about in your marriage? Uh, how do you work through those differences? Uh, Paul, Paul said this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How do you work through your differences? Well, Paul tells you, humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, Right? You work on those spiritual attitudes and qualities in your life. You can push through and you can have these kinds of conversations and and find resolution. How well do you think that your spouse knows and understands your sexual desires? Do you make sexual activity in your marriage something that is both relational and vibrant? Do you understand that expressing love and concern and care for your spouse, and yes, even being sexually intimate with him or her, can be acts of worship to God. There's a reason why Song of Solomon talks the way that it does about the wonder of sexuality within the confines of marriage. Because God is the one who created sexual desires, because the Bible doesn't want you to cut off sexual desire from God's truth or God's grace or isolate it from the reality of who God is. That is what Satan wants. Okay, Satan wants to ruin what God has created as good. Satan wants to destroy the true meaning and the beauty of sex. To do his best, to as Piper says, take the pearl of sexual desire and instead of putting it in the pendant of marriage, feed it to the swine of fornication and adultery and pornography and incest and child abuse and homosexuality. But the Bible intends to elevate marriage and sexuality in such a way that you would say, I don't deserve my spouse. Lord, you know everything there is to know about me, but you have forgiven me, you've cleansed me, 
and given me these gifts, which are just further expressions of your grace, and there's just something about this marriage and this union that declares how wonderful and merciful and kind and good you really are. And the Bible intends to elevate marriage and sexuality in such a way that you and I would know and believe that sexual relations in marriage are good and clean and receive them with thanksgiving, knowing that because of Jesus we can have guilt-free sex as we strive to satisfy and serve our spouses and that our pleasure and the glory of Christ come together in this undefiled marriage bed. Amen? So next time we'll come together. Again, we're going to speed up, obviously, in the second half. We're going to just barely touch on chapter 5, but spend most of our time next Sunday thinking through how the book ends, particularly in you know that last chapter in chapter 8 of Song of Solomon, and focus primarily on how to maintain passion and unity in your marriage over the long haul. So beyond the wedding and beyond the phase, but in the long term, how do you cultivate passion and unity in your marriage over the long haul? Song of Solomon actually talks about that. What to do, right? To, to, to keep the flame, if you will, going um, uh, in, in over, the long, over the long distance. So we'll come back and we'll spend most of our time addressing. Okay, folks. All right. Thank you for your time.